Good morning and welcome to Rising Fridays. We have a great show for you today. Ryan, it's awesome to have you once again all the way from the Rising Fridays Vermont Bureau. <laughs> Good, good to be here holding down the, the Vermont fort. Uh, and so I was I was driving the other day, by the way, and I thought you'd find this interesting. I was listening to NPR and they said, of course, of you know, course, up, of course got to Got to have NPR on in the car, uh, either that or uh, fish on Sirius XM. Uh, so and they said up upcoming, we're going to have the, the basically the final series. They used the word series in Congress's January 6th hearing. And I was really struck by the by the term series, like the last in their series. And I thought that that was actually fairly accurate it, in the way that they're in the way that they're in a way to describe what has been this interesting arc that they've presented. So let's let's talk for a second just about the performance aspect of this entire thing. Because you you said something just before we went on air that I thought was pretty insightful that it that it has a lot of kind of true crime genre similarities to it, which I think helps explain its its popularity with the public and also the the impact. I think real impact that it's having on public opinion. Yeah, and we, we have a big show. We have John Lubecki is here to talk about psychedelics. Philip Wegman's here to talk about President Biden's COVID diagnosis. But last night, um, you know, just sitting down and watching a chunk of the January 6th hearings, it really did strike me at how they brought in an ABC News producer and they, they wove this as a narrative that was almost dispensed in sort of serial doses. You know, how mm -hmm. they used to, everything used to be sort of serialized, like fiction. It was printed in the, in the papers week to week or month to month month. Um, and it really has felt like that. And, you know, from my perspective, that's been very cynical. Um, and their idea that they're coming back in September after the recess with more is cynical to me because it tells me if they have pertinent public information, they're not releasing it. They're saving it uh, to dispense it in doses that are, you know, incremental towards the election. They're doing this in a midterm year. And we know they've told places like the New York Times that they hope that this affects the outcome of the election. But the way that they do it um, is I have never seen anything like this in Congress, Ryan, and I'm curious as to what you think, because you, know, you could talk about the Benghazi hearings, you could talk about Watergate, you could talk about Whitewater, um, you can talk about a lot of different things that Congress has sort of chewed over in the investigative format. Nothing has ever really looked like this. Some of it's been very interesting. The Trump impeachment trials, they were, you know, they really did try to weave something together with those, but it doesn't come close to what they're doing with this. Right. For the parallels, you have to go uh, to prestige cable. I mean, the Sopranos, then they split their season finale. Uh, Game of Thrones, they, they kind of split their season finale or their, their final season. I mean, which that, you know, which then builds, you know, suspense and anticipation for it. You know, the congressional hearings, though, you know, for, you know, since the advent of television, you know, have have been something that have really you know, brought the country together in a way that not that they all agree on what they're seeing, but they're all kind of watching that. And actually, the 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 first were uh, what in the in the the fifties with the with the mob these 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 huge mob hearings where you would describe like walking down the streets of New York City while these mob hearings were on, uh, and every bar would be would be playing these hearings, like really exposing kind of the the uh, the inner workings of the mafia, and uh, and that's I think kicked off America's fascination, actually, with mafia, like a fiction followed that later. Uh, and then, of course, you had the Watergate hearings, which gripped gripped an entire country. But then I do think as, you know, media media evolved and splintered, it became harder for Congress to, to do that again, because you didn't have just three networks anymore. And if all three yes. put them on, then everybody's going to have to watch it. So I think 
basically the the system evolved to to the new reality and created what is you know much more kind of entertaining uh, content than uh, you know, the the previous stuff was entertaining, but you you'd have to sit through five hours where they're they're packing it all into like you know what ninety minutes or so mm-hmm. uh, and re- pre-recording key interviews so you don't sit through the whole interview waiting for the key spot like here's the key spot and then dropping it sure is it cynical absolutely I mean that's it's you know it's political it's the 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 goal here is to kind of I guess bring tr- bring Trump down it, it may Ryan, be it's a, bipartisan. Yeah. <laughs> it is it is bipartisan and they might as well have some of the democrats label themselves republicans at this point um, <laughs> because that's that's all that you know Cheney and Kinsinger are even though they haven't really changed as far as i can tell their their underlying politics i would still you know Ch- Cheney is Cheney is still Cheney uh even if she's been kind of booted out of this this republican party but uh you know it just on in terms of effectiveness it it, ha- it has been impressive and and what they've been doing is saving some of their best bits and we could we could roll that now this is i mean the, the, jo- the josh hawley running across the capitol that's one of the kind of funny moments uh it's not funny to see somebody running for their life but the, the guy who was kind of you know pumping his fist to the crowd and then a couple hours later not the uh, same crowd know, though. running not necessarily the same crowd there might have been one or two people in that same crowd yes not exactly the same crowd uh but there's a narrative arc that that that's going to get people talking about it. But this, this Trump clip that they had, right? This is a pretty, this is pretty revelatory moment. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say... Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? But Congress is certified. Now Congress is Yeah, right. Now Congress is I didn't say over, so let, let me see. Don't go to the paragraph before. Okay? I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Just take that. Ah, uh, good. Take the word yesterday, because it doesn't work with the heinous attack on our country. Say on our country. Want to say that? No. no, no. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. Well, I remember when uh, I think Sager interviewed uh, Donald Trump, and I, this has been you know, consistent for pretty much anybody who interviews Trump. They come away from it saying, 
he's the same person um, in public mm-hmm. and in private. And that's what I think you, I mean, the primary sources back to this point about true crime are extremely compelling. Um, and, you know, it's always interesting to get more information. It's always inf- interesting to get more primary source documents or primary source video, whatever it is. In this case, I connect this one with what Sarah Matthews said last night, which was, I, I think I put it in my radar because it was one of the things that stood out to me. Um, she said there was resistance to sending out an additional tweet about you know quelling the violence um, because they didn't want it to look like the media, they didn't want to give the media a win. That was the phrasing. They didn't want to give the media a win. And I think you're seeing the same thing with Trump's sort of resistance to that language about certifying the election that, mm-hmm. to be clear, is dangerous. Um, but, and you know, the, the best way I heard it put was, actually it was Ben Sass, who after uh, January 6th said, this complaints about the election were, quote, playing with fire. And I think that's the best way to say it. You're sort of winking and nodding at something, um, and it, it, you're sort of building and stirring it into a very, I think, dangerous situation when people have no reason to trust media. Um, the last thing they need to then be told is, is to be misled by the people who are correct, that they have no reason to trust media. And so it, it just creates, I think, a, a sort of toxic cocktail. Um, but that's where this all comes from. And, and I wish a lot of people on the left and in the media would understand that. You don't have to agree with it. I don't even agree with it. But just understand that this is coming from a place of like when the media gets so many things wrong and is so unfair, then it creates this reaction on the right and certainly among Trump people where they say, we don't want to give the media a win. And it gets, again, like it's, it's, that's not an appropriate reaction, but it is what's happening. Um, and it's, it's not a good place to be in as a country. Right. It's another function of our tribalism, too. And another another key insight uh, from recently was from one of his spokespeople who said there was just no way he was ever going to uh, you know, publicly acknowledge or, or mourn the death of the, the first officer who died you know, shortly after the January 6th uh, riot, because it would then seem to him or seem to his his people like he was blaming them for it. Yep. And the, he said, those are his people, and he's just not going to do that. And I just, and, and that, that, that's his tribe, he's ride or die, and he, that's, that's who he's sticking with. And, you know, so I, I don't think anybody can come out uh, of this hearing w- without at least understanding that. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, that is a really important thing to understand. And we heard that a little bit. They played a clip of, I think it was Jamie Herrera Butler from uh, Washington, paraphrasing what she was told about Kevin McCarthy's conversation with Donald Trump, saying basically that he was saying to Kevin McCarthy, these aren't my people, that's Antifa. And when Kevin McCarthy said, no, those are your people, Trump said, um, well, maybe they just care more about this election than you do, Kevin. Uh, And so what you see happening there is a a man who is so completely distrustful of the media that in the moment, as it was happening, a lot of people were swayed by this idea that just the vast majority of the rioters were somehow leftist infiltrators, um, Antifa infiltrators. And I remember when I was reporting from the Capitol, live from that scene, I was getting just hammered by a lot of people on the right who have no good reason to trust the media and were saying, this doesn't look like something people 
conservatives do. And Ryan, a couple of weeks ago, I showed you a video that I took where there were people climbing up on statues, and one of the Trump protesters was screaming at him, you look like effing leftists. You look like effing liberals. Mm-hmm. Get down from the statue. Um, and so it was a really strange uh, set of affairs. It was a very strange scene um, at the Capitol. And so you see Trump not even being able to trust what's happening very plainly. And when he's told it's happening, he doesn't want he, he doesn't want to sort of, I think, concede that there's any connection between point A and point B. The other, the other development, and curious for your take on this, seems to be that there's more support now uh, for that for that claim about the, the big fight inside the SUV beast. This this famous moment where he's he's really you know hammering at his Secret Service detail uh, to to take him to the Capitol. I'm the effing president. You know, take take me to the Capitol. You know, with his one aide saying that uh, you know she was told that he he lunged and like tried to grab the wheel. There does seem to be more uh, more su- more support for that. Where where do you where does where do you think that stands now? And on on the right is is that is that just a thing of mockery at this point, or is or is there an open mind to that, well, maybe this might have actually happened. I think that was a damaging moment for the committee because it was so quickly uh, thrown into question. And I think substantively, there were there were substantive reasons to distrust it when you had a lot of testimony from different people um, coming out and saying, mm, no, and it just seemed implausible in the first place. And so I think that started to plant the seed that the witnesses uh, who seem credible, right? Like most of these witnesses have been uh, articulate, have come across well, and the committee emphasizes over and over again, these were Trump loyalists. They're you know, lifelong Republicans in many cases. So the committee wants people to believe they have no incentives to sort of flip. Um, although I think if you want to work in D.C., it's actually your incentive is definitely to flip. Um, but if, if that's the case, yeah. So I think that made it you know, start to seem like things might not be as they appear. Um, and but that even, was even if you even with the new people coming forward and saying, no, 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 this this something like this happened. Like that's. <laughs> I think in terms of public perception, yes. I think that was a, a moment that made the committee look like, you know, even these people who are credible and testifying to their own experiences or seem credible, when something like that can fall apart, it, it just casts a, that doubt. I think it casts everything into a, a sense of doubt. So, and I think it probably made some people tune out, you know, say, well, if I'm just going to be lied yeah. to. That's probably a lot of our list, a lot of our viewers, like maybe half of them are probably are tune out. So I would say this, the, 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 the main guy denying this has denied basically everything else that people have said about him from a bunch of other people, uh, despite there being lots of, uh, you know, corroborating uh, witnesses uh, that this the Secret Service leadership had, you know, is not turning over their text messages from that day because they say they accidentally deleted them. Uh, we'll find out whether or not hopefully we'll find out whether or not that was an accident. But it's awfully, awfully coincidental that they deleted these text messages after getting uh, re- requests for them. Uh, and and now you're, you know the MPD officer and others are saying no 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 something like this happened so I would just I would just caution people to be uh, not not to be too easily lied to by people on your side either just because a guy involved says oh no no I didn't do that doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't do that yeah and just the the closing point because we have to wrap um, is that that it's actually a perfect place to wrap because that's what's so disappointing to me about the committee in general is that they're a really legitimate 
questions that actually do need to be answered um, about January 6th. The Secret Service text messages are really a really good example of that. Um, there's, there's more we need to know about how this happened, uh, how the Capitol building was breached by a mob. Um, and I just, I've sort of lost my faith. And I think a lot of the public, as you say, Ryan, and probably like our audiences are with me, our audience is with me on this, that I, I don't believe that they're seriously trying to get at some of these questions. That doesn't mean they aren't dredging up some interesting evidence in the process. Um, but I feel like it's it's all a much more serious business than uh, some of the some of the cynical strategies that they've employed. But on that note, we have to leave it there, uh, and we'll be back to tell you what's on our radars right after this. All right, Ryan, what's on your radar? Well, let's take a closer look at Gavin Newsom today. So the, the California governor clearly. Uh, very much wants to be president. And it's easy to tell that he sees a potential opening in 2024 with Biden flailing and the party having built practically no bench at all. And while the drama between him and DeSantis is good culture war fodder, there's actually a much more pressing question that will answer whether or not he ought to be disqualified for the nomination as a Democrat right out of the gate. And that's a possible ballot measure that would raise the state's minimum wage to $18 an hour. Now, Tolchin Research, which did the polling for Bernie Sanders' 2016 and 2020 campaigns, surveyed 1,000 likely California voters last week and found overwhelming support for the potential measure. But here's the problem. It's not on the ballot yet. But Newsom could change that. If Newsom or the legislature don't move, the measure won't be on the ballot until 2024. But if he moves, he can get it on this coming November. That would start the process of getting people raises earlier, but it would also have a political upside for Democrats. And if Newsom doesn't do it, you have to ask why. Now, Tolchin's research is clear. So Californians support it by a 68 to 21 margin. It's an incredible 40, plus 48 gap. A majority of 53% say they would definitely vote yes, which is practically unheard of for a ballot measure. Now, when people who lean one way or another are counted in, support goes up to 73% to 22. It even has 53% support, including leaners, among Republicans. So, but take a look at two of the even more important numbers there. So look right there, the 68% next to no party preference, and the 64% at the bottom next to voters who live in 2022 battleground congressional districts. Now, no party preference is California's version of independence, and they support this by more than two to one. The same is true for voters who live in congressional swing districts. And with the House on the line, if Newsom state wins a bunch of close House races, that's the kind of thing he can point to running for the presidential nomination. Now, the other question is whether this would actually get more people out to vote and whether those people would then be more likely to vote for Democrats. And the survey shows that in both cases, the answer is yes. So 75 percent of voters want Newsom to put this on the ballot, including 71 percent of voters in swing districts. Now, two thirds of voters described it as, quote, urgent that he do so. And this part is key. 60% of voters in swing districts said they think more, they would think more favorably of Newsom if he put it on the ballot. And finally, would voters be more likely to cast a ballot at all? A full 85% say they'd be more likely to vote, with more than half saying they'd be, quote, much more likely to vote. Now, that includes 66% of black voters who said they'd be much more likely to vote, 52% 
of, of people under 40 said the same thing. Liberal voters said much the same. So roughly nine out of 10 young people, nine out of 10 black voters and nine out of 10 liberal voters all said they'd be more likely to vote if it's on the ballot. Now, if you're all three and you're young, black and what the survey calls liberal, you're probably closer to 10 out of 10 more likely to vote. This will be a revealing moment for Newsom. There's just no sensible reason not to put this on the ballot. It wouldn't even be that hard. So if he doesn't do it, there's no reason to think that as president, he'd even try to do any of the hard stuff. And so if Newsom doesn't put this on the ballot, he would have to call an executive session. Democrats have a super majority, but he could do it in like a day. If he doesn't put this on the ballot, then the backers of the petition you know, can gather signatures and it'll go on the 2024 ballot. So it's, you know, it's not as if it will never get on, but it, it won't be on in November if he doesn't, if he doesn't do it. And if he doesn't do it, you'd have to ask, well, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? Well, yeah, and that's why I don't get Gavin Newsom, period. I don't think he's a talented politician. I think the only reason he gets mentioned at all is because he has a good relationship with the media. But he's been an, a pretty abject failure in California on many different measures. One of my favorite stories, one of my favorite pieces of investigative reporting during the pandemic is something Lee Fong did for you guys at The Intercept, where he documented how successfully Hollywood lobbied Gavin Newsom to get carve-outs to COVID regulations um, mm -hmm. that shut down so many other different businesses. So the fact that Gavin Newsom is resisting this in that environment for Democrats, in this in this moment for Democrats, when just about everybody, I mean, even corporatists like Kamala Harris were running pretty far to the left in 2020 when they were primarying, right? Like they were actually, they, they understood where the base was mm -hmm. um, and maybe you wouldn't trust that they'd actually govern that way, but they were certainly paying lip service. In, and that's sort of what helped Biden win. He was the one person who was kind of resisting that tug to even pay lip service to people on some of these ideas. So Newsom, I just like plainly don't understand. Um, he's, he's just a bad politician. Um, I, I just I don't get it. And I think this is another example of how he's not even good at being a corporate Democrat. He's not even good at it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and what, what Newsom has going for him is that our kind of uh, East Coast chauvinism means that a ton of Democrats and a lot and decent amount of the media will be coming into a Newsom presidential campaign looking at him as kind of a blank slate. Totally. They know California exists, but they don't they really don't follow the ins and outs of the of the politics there. And and so if if he did something like this while people are starting to pay attention, people will be like, "Oh, that's pretty clever." And democratic voters love cleverness. Like they love to they love to think that they're being uh, that they're outsmarting the opponents when when Karl Rove uh, put all of those uh, gay marriage bans on the ballot in, in 2004, Democrats thought it was abhorrent, but they were kind of impressed on a game kind respect of game. tactical <laughs> level, a game respect game. And, and so uh, if Democratic kind of primary voters saw Newsom doing something like this, they would say to themselves, OK, this is somebody that wants to win. Mm -hmm. And there's they're so, I think, fed up with losers, with with people who don't seem willing to do even the most basic things to try to outmaneuver uh, Republicans, uh, that just this little tiny bit of effort would go an extraordinary amount of way. And, you know, not for nothing, you know, millions of people would see a raise as a result of this because it's not just people, you know, if you raise if you raise a minimum wage, people who were already making above the minimum wage, they often get a little bump 
as well because you know, you're like you're like hey I'm I'm leaving it's not fair if if this person you know who hasn't been here as long as me is getting a raise I get a raise too and so you know then people people across the board end up getting raises so this would benefit uh, you know an enormous numbers of people but I think it would also be a huge benefit to Newsom and it and it like I said if he doesn't do it 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 is it, it's extremely telling it means that the guy just just doesn't have any fight in him and, and fits the character that you're talking about. Just a lousy, lousy politician. I, I, I we'll see. I don't know. Um, it just seems like such a no brainer, but you know, I, you know, I'm never surprised when I'm disappointed. That's for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, never underestimate a politician's ability to be bought. Um, and yeah, here's something really interesting is you sound a lot like one of the like founding members of the freedom caucus or someone not ideologically, of course, but tactically, um, or someone who was just an early Trump adapter, like a, a Jeff Sessions. It was this idea that Republicans are losers. They do not fight Democrats. They have no aggression, sort of tactically, politically. They're wimps who go along with what the establishment narrative is and the establishment sort of line, and they never deviate from it. And that's how Republicans really ended up with Donald Trump, who trampled the rest of the candidates um, in the primary. He really won the general election by winning, obviously, like he was a long shot in the primary. And just just coming out as, as brash as he was, that appealed to some Democrats too. It appealed to some Obama voters. It appealed to some Bernie voters. Um, and I think there is this just deep sense and deep uh, frustration, as you've talked about when you talk about filibuster reform, Ryan, with inaction um, and the kind of malaise in Washington, D.C. And so people who do show fight and show a willingness to like actually take steps to take action when it's not always easy. Uh, that's a total political winner right now, uh, just across the aisle. It doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right, but Democrats seem to have, have struggled. They haven't had their like celebrity apprentice wake up call yet. <laughs> right. And it, it should, it shouldn't be uh, such a massive step to put a, a ballot measure that's supported by like six or seven out of 10 of the public onto the ballot. Like that should be, Oh, you, you, you look at that poll and you're like, oh, well, let's just do this. Like, this is simple. Uh, but in the world that we're in, it, it would actually count as something courageous. And that's, that's, that is perhaps the most pitiful statement of all about the party. Hmm. I don't anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing what's on your radar up next. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, back on June 17th, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, bought somewhere between $1 million and $5 million worth of computer chip stock. Now, here's a headline from the New York Times that very same day. Here, you can see the disclosure Pelosi herself signed on July 14th, which unusual whales brought to my attention actually right after we finished taping last week's show. Now, here's Pelosi's response to a Fox News's reporter, Fox News reporter's question about whether her husband, Paul Pelosi, ever traded on information based on information she shared with him about Congress. Uh, over the course of your career, uh, has your husband ever made a stock purchase or sale based on information he's received from you? What are you saying? Uh, over the course of your career, has your husband ever made a stock purchase or sale based on information he's received from you? No, absolutely not. Okay. Now, congressional negotiations over the CHIPS Act are very public. 
Everyone knows about them. NVIDIA is trading well, and analysts say the company wouldn't, quote, directly benefit from the legislation. That doesn't mean indirect benefits are out of the question or that Pelosi didn't know about something germane to the sale being discussed behind closed doors. It also doesn't mean her husband's stocks are totally out of mind when she's legislating. We basically have to take her word for it. The speaker does not own any stocks, this is what her spokesman said, as you can see from the required disclosures with which the speaker fully cooperates, these transactions are marked SP for spouse. The speaker has no prior knowledge or subsequent involvement in any transactions. That's what he told Fox News, the spokesman for Pelosi. So we have her word, but then we also have her track record, which doesn't exactly work in Pelosi's favor. Peter Schweitzer wrote extensively about Pelosi in his eye-opening 2011 book, quote, throw them all out. That was the title of the book, great title, which peeled back the curtain on both Republicans and Democrats. Back in 2011, CBS reported on the Pelosi's participation in at least eight IPOs. One of those came in 2008 from Visa, just as a troublesome piece of legislation that would have hurt credit card companies began making its way through the House, undisturbed by a potential conflict of interest, the Pelosi's purchased 5,000 shares of Visa at the initial price of $44, as CBS reported at the time. Two days later, it was trading at $64. The credit card legislation never made it to the floor of the House. In his book, Schweitzer also reported that Pelosi, quote, seems to have a history of advancing earmarks that are near her family's commercial real estate. And that's one of Congress's favorite ways to quietly enrich itself, although the media doesn't cover it very often. Schweitzer also reported on her questionable investments in national ga natural gas over the years. Nonetheless, Democrats handed Pelosi, the self-appointed master legislator with her well-known fundraising prowess, the speaker's gavel back years later. Why wouldn't she be run out of town by these scandals? Surely this level of corruption is a political liability, right? Well, in order to be run out of town, people have to know enough to run. Fox News analyzed the transcripts of CNN, MSNBC, CBS, NBC, and ABC from the day the story broke through the following Monday. None of those networks mentioned Paul Pelosi's trade. Many of the outlets that did cover the trade declined to contextualize the information with the couple's history of questionable financial decisions, probably because nobody knows about it because few outlets have covered this over the years. It's kind of a vicious cycle that allows Pelosi to be treated like a girl boss from the self-described defenders of democracy in our fourth estate. Of course, when I checked whether the same outlets Fox look at, looked at covered the news that former Senator Kelly Leffler, this was back in March of 2020, made some questionable trades after an early COVID briefing, a probe that ensnared other senators the DOJ has since dropped, most of those outlets had covered it and had covered it relatively quickly. Now, this isn't exactly apples to apples because I didn't have access to their on-air transcripts, but I did find digital coverage of the trades from the outlets. And aside from, locating, from some local affiliates running a Sinclair wire service report, there wasn't much there. Oddly enough, I thought about this when Sarah Matthews said during the January 6th hearing last night that White House officials resisted sending messages to rioters during the chaos so as to avoid giving the media a win. Think about that. These hearings have chosen theater over substance, but that's actually a pretty useful little revelation because it's truly how Trump and his allies on the right see things. Vindicating the media is to be avoided at all costs because it legitimizes an institution that deserves little overall legitimacy. That's the logic. Now, I disagree, of course, but the years of unfair, disparate treatment are taking a toll. And while Trump is to blame for his individual failings, some of the blame is also on the media, which lies about being neutral and that then acts 
acts as anything but. And while we're talking about conflicts of interest, let's remember that while Congress is considering major tech and China legislation, the Senate Majority Leader's daughters work at Meta and Amazon, and the Senate Minority Leader is married into a family that does extensive business with the Chinese government, such as the state of Washington, D.C. Ryan Drew Hamill, is, that's Pelosi's spokesman, uh, longtime spokesman, in his statement when he said that Pelosi is, he, she cooperates fully with the transparency requirements. To me, that's really the point. She does, she does. Like you can just mark this down and whether, whether you think this individual trade was questionable, I mean, I think it's clearly a conflict of interest that even if it didn't have anything to do with insider trading or knowledge, it's a conflict of interest that you shouldn't be able to do. So even if you think this individual trade is sort of a one-off and a bad example, whatever. The point is, she's able to be fully transparent about this like naked conflict of interest and naked level of corruption, and nobody cares. It makes a couple headlines once in a while, and then we all just go on, move about our business. We go on, move on, go about our business. Yeah. The same thing is true of Chuck Schumer. The same thing is true of Mitch McConnell. We just keep pressing on, and these bills keep coming up and getting watered down, basically. Yeah, and it goes to our complete collapse of kind of civic virtue, I think, in our yes. in our government, because this kind of thing should be so thoroughly stigmatized that it doesn't even need to be made illegal. The fact that it's not uh, means that it does uh, need to be made illegal. But if you walk it backwards and say, okay, you know what? Pelosi says she never trades a stock. Let's take her at her word. Fine. She does. She never trades a stock. Her husband trades the stocks. Now, what what do they what do they talk about? But when uh, when they're talking about their day, like, are they, does she ever mention what's going to happen with the chips bill? Like, so is she in some, in the, in a situation where she's just, you know, voluntarily kind of gagging herself and can't talk about anything that happens at work because she's the speaker of the house. Everything that she touches is going to have some effect on some element of the market. And because uh, Paul Pelosi is invested all over the place, you know, everything she touches is going to affect his investments one way or another. So you can you could just go through uh, and, you know, probably hit every single trade and find some connection between something. And so the answer to that is just don't do this. Like yes. you have to have a kind of s sense of civic virtue that says that if you're going to serve the public, that's what that's what you're going to do. And that's what your and that's what your that's what your family is going to. Do. That's what your husband uh, is is going to do. It's it's just it's we're not at a place where you can just ask the public to just trust you that you know you're not you're not walking away with any ex additional proceeds here, uh, and it it is in open secret. And Katie Porter said as much just the other day. She's like, we know that there are people who are doing insider trading here. Uh, we we know that and. It's connected, actually, uh, to the fact that there hasn't been a, a raise for yeah. members of Congress for a very long time. And the implicit, and I, and I suspect, and I've been told, you know, ex explicit, though not putting down in paper, deal is, look, okay, yes, we understand that $174,000 is a lot to have two homes on, you know, two homes in two major cities. Uh, that's asking a lot of these people who are, you know, accustomed to making tons more. You know, if you talk to somebody who's making the median salary, in the in the U.S. and say, okay, you're going to make 174,000 now, and yes, you'll have to have an extra apartment. They're like, well, I can I can totally make that work. We're not talking about those. We were talking about these elites, these elites, and the the deal is they're 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 not going to get a raise, but they're going to be able to make this little uh, this little extra 10 percent for the big guys, as as they, as they say in a different context. Uh, so that's going to kind of supplement their income, and that's where you get all the resistance from because people are like people are saying like, wait a minute. 
I, I agreed to not take a pay raise because I'm getting this. You t- now you're going to take this away too, and it's and it, it it's just a complete collapse of of civic virtue. Yeah, and that 10% little bump is not innocuous. It actually it gets things taken in, taken out of legislation or put into legislation that shouldn't be there. Um, and so like while they're enriching themselves just for that little extra cash, like AOC was talking last week about how it's hard to have two homes in two different major cities, and she caught some flack for that. But I remember when Sean Duffy, who has a bunch of kids, um, was elected to Congress in Wisconsin, was making sort of a similar argument. It's actually kind of legitimately true. Like that's, that is, if, you, if you're trying to rent in D.C. Yeah. and in New York City, that's really difficult. Um, and if you're trying to raise seven, eight kids, that's also really difficult. So yeah, but I mean, still, the, the civic virtue point plays into that in and of itself, that you should be serving the public not to make money. You should be serving the public because um, you, know, you, you genuinely want to do a public service. And we used to have an ecosystem that incentivized it. So you, the public used to have you know, what felt like more of a voice. Um, the media used to do a better job of using sunlight as the best disinfectant. But I mean, even like if you look at Mitch McConnell, I think they're way harsher on Republicans on this stuff than they are because it fits the sort of broader liberal narrative about, uh, you know, corporatist Republican fat cats, so it's shifting a little bit. It's, it's never mentioned in the media. It's so rarely mentioned in the media. His enormous conflicts of interest through his, the family that he married into, um, his, his father-in-law, his sister-in-law have massive investments um, in, in China. They right. sit on the board, I believe, of a major Chinese uh, shipping company. I mean, it's just like incredible. And it's a, it's a giant shrug for us because we're so far afield from a different time when this would be stigmatized, when the media wouldn't let you get away with it, when voters wouldn't let you get away with it because the media wasn't letting you get away with it. It's unbelievable. Although let's not go too overboard in, in uh, valorizing the past too, because if you think about what was the first Congress that took up <laughs> Hamilton's assumption of the federal debt, a bunch of those members of Congress went out ahead of time and got this debt at pennies. And then when the federal government uh, assumed the debt in the deal that basically you know moved Congress down to, down to Washington, D.C., uh, they made a they made a huge upside uh, by buying buying the, the the revolutionary war debt at pennies and then getting the federal government to buy it back from them um, in in dollars. So ever since the first Congress, that's you know there's been a side hustle in, yeah. in kind of specul- speculating on legislation that you then get to vote on. No, it's not new. I just think the lack of stigma, at least yes. in mo- in recent history, yeah. is, is I think definitely that's I think that I think that's real. Yeah. yeah. Well, great. <laughs> Just, that's where we are, such as, such as the state of uh, Washington, D.C. in 2022. We will be back with more Rising right after this. Author Michael Pollan is out with a hit new documentary on Netflix on psychedelics at the same time that the House of Representatives is easing restrictions on the therapeutic use of psychedelics. So are we at a cultural moment where psychedelics might be gaining more acceptance, both not just culturally, but also legally. And to talk about that, we're going to be joined today by uh, Siraj Patel, who is running for uh, Congress in Manhattan and recently worked with Michael Pollan on his new kind of mental health and psychedelics uh, policy that he unveiled recently. And John Lou Becky, a veteran who was uh, is featured in the documentary, when also was kind of a leading lobbyist on this push in the House of Representatives, which I think surprised a lot of people that it was able to get through. There were two uh, distinct but complementary amendments, both dealing with psychedelics in the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, one by Representative Crenshaw, Republican, the other by Representative Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat. Um, both passed the House, face an uphill climb to get through 
the Senate, get through the conference committee. But uh, John and Siraj, uh, welcome to you both. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me. And, and so, John, I want to start start with you. Can you talk about this this legislation and what what it took to get past kind of def defense department and other opposition to get it through the House? So, you, as you said, there there were two amendments that made it through. There were actually three that were introduced. Uh, Matt, and interestingly enough, you had two Republicans introducing psychedelic amendments: uh, Representative Gates and then Representative Crenshaw. Uh, Representative Ocasio Cortez copied uh, Gates's uh, bill and introduced it as her own. Hers made it all the way through. Um, Dan Crenshaw gave a great speech to the Rules Committee and then a fantastic floor speech. But a lot of this has been not just myself, but other uh, organizations like MAPS and VETS, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, who you know, contacted offices, had Navy SEALs and others who've been impacted by this you know, reach out and just tell their stories. Uh, the science is there. Nobody really, we, a lot of this is education and there's been a lot of education over the past few years. You've seen that as legislation and report languages move through culminating in getting these two amendments all the way through the house. Uh, and hopefully we can get an amendment introduced in the Senate. Well, and Siraj, it's not just uh, Michael Pollan. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow did a, a, an episode of her Goop Netflix series on psychedelics as well. But I think to Jonathan's point, you three know this issue so well, but Republicans sort of coming around speaks to how powerful the science is. And uh, it's very powerful when you talk about veterans getting treated for PTSD, but this is, it's so broad. I mean, this is something that could benefit uh, so, so, so many people. And so I was wondering if you could speak, Siraj, to um, basically what we have learned about how effective these treatments can truly be. Yeah, I mean, let's, <clears throat> let's just start with the, the facts here that uh, over 50% of Americans at some point in their lives are going to um, suffer from mental illness, according to the CDC. And that number increases every single year with the highest suicide rate in the world. That number increases almost every single year. And so we have a mental health epidemic in America. And one of the most promising arrows in our quiver the use of psychedelic-assisted therapy with psilocybin or ketamine or MDMA um, have been uh, outlawed as a research thing for decades thanks to a Nixonian obsession with drugs and counterculture. Nobody believes that, uh, you know, shutting down, um, you know, research on something that was so promising in the 50s and 60s should still make sense. And this is a generational problem, guys, that, that what you're seeing isn't that it's Republicans and Democrats what you're seeing is that some of the younger Republicans and younger Democrats in office who understand that we need to shed that Nixonian obsession and move forward towards science. And so let me just say that, like, you know, we know that, for example, ketamine is now approved for treatment-resisted depression, uh, unlike SSRIs, which the United States is the highest consumer of them, which is a chronic thing. You have to take Prozac your whole life. Um, ketamine uh, is effective within four hours, not two to four weeks. It la its benefits last for months at a time. It has anti-addictive properties. It helps to quit smoking, alcoholism, and things like that. So there's nothing about this that's dangerous. In fact, we use ketamine to anesthetize children because it's the safest anesthetic uh, because it doesn't make your heart rate go down. Um, at the same time, you know, with NIH funding, which is the only ball game in town, until then, uh, until the FDA and the DEA deschedule or reschedule psilocybin down 
We've only seen about $30 million of NIH funding funded to probably one of the most highest potential things we have um, to cure uh, or, or take a major stab at mental illness in America. And so we need to expand the use of these things. We need to expand the research opportunities for this and expand compassionate use for, uh, to allow psychedelics for mental health disorders. Mm -hmm. I'll add one more thing. There's an initiative called the Brain Initiative. It is a moonshot. Um, currently, if we double the funding for it, it is like the Human Genome Project. The project is to map the brain and how it works, to attack psychological disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. If any of you have ever lost a parent to Alzheimer's or um, you know dementia, it, it's an incredibly painful thing to watch. And we as a country need to lead with science and compassion when it comes to these things and shed this generational obsession with the past, just because it's been done, doesn't mean yeah. it's right. And, and John, I think a, a decent number of people watching this, uh, watching this segment now would be saying, well, I, I understand everything you're saying. This, this, makes, this makes sense to me. The, the other half might be like, this sounds impossible. How could, how could something actually be this effective and be you know, kept, away, kept away from people? So as somebody who has gone through the therapy yourself, um, can, you, can you talk about, can you try to explain to people why it is that these you know, uh, therapeutic assisted kind of shorter sessions are able to, uh, you know, have such compelling results for people. So one of the things to realize is these medicines, they're not really the thing that are, that's fixing you. It, you're, it puts the mind, body and spirit in the place it needs to be for therapy to work. So for example, when it comes to PTSD, there's a lot of barriers to even getting remotely close to the trauma to talk about it and process it, the medication puts the mind, body, and spirit in the place it needs to be. Um, as Siraj was talking about, one of the things psilocybin is actually very good for is uh, end-of-life care uh, in cancer patients so that they can you know, pass with dignity rather than anxiety. Um, and the Crenshaw Amendment actually goes so far as to not just include MDMA and psilocybin, but also Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT. Ibogaine has, has shows so much promise. We we need a ton of funding to be able to research it. You know, 680 CO. Right? Like, uh, ad right. Addiction, brain injuries, PTSD, you know, 600, vet, uh, 600 uh, operators have gone down to Mexico. They've had to leave the country they fought and bled for to get treatment so they didn't die. And I will also throw out, you know, it's the same clinic that Hunter Biden went to. He's like, you know, he's actually doing very well since he did the Ibogaine. And as Representative Crenshaw said, you know, veterans, everyone deserves to have this research, to have these answers. And then for me, let the chips fall where they may. If, if, they're, if, if it's shown that MDMA assisted therapy is counterindicative for something. I'm I'm okay with it. I know people who, for example, because MDMA is a stimulant, if there's certain heart conditions and things with blood pressure that become problematic, it's counterindicated. I'm okay with that. I lead with the science, let the chips fall where they may, but we need to do the research. And this is where having DOD fund this and allowing active duty troops to participate with this cornucopia of substances should lead to you know, hopefully a mass influx of cash because it's not just NIH. The VA funds a lot and the DOD funds even more. They spent, I believe it's $37 million with the University of North Carolina to have them create 
a psychedelic that isn't psychedelic. So it's not that they don't know this works. They're already funding other things. And Ibogaine phase one trial probably costs $1.52 million, which is budget dust in DOD terms. But right. you can keep, you know, and, and you're I, looking I, at, at DOD <laughs> with 60% loss in recruiting. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's just add one one more thing I wanna say, which is that why are we talking about this right now uh, when it is, these are thing, compounds that are clearly working. No one's asking for tax dollars. No one's asking for a massive new spending program. All we're asking is for the programs that are already in place, that the NIH and the DOD and the VA fund right now for mental health research, that are forced to use uh, the things we have right now, which are all temporary SSRIs and things like that. All we're saying is that there are compounds that were so promising in the 1950s and 60s and Richard Nixon, who was so paranoid, obsessive, compulsive, and pro-Vietnam War, was just angry, frankly, and had a tantrum at the counterculture and at hippies and anti-war protesters and decided to punish them by outlawing some of the substances they were using recreationally. That is all we're talking about here. And you've got, you know, I'm running against two incumbents who have been in office since 1992. And one of the things I always talk about is how we have dynamic new policies and people ask you how. And I'm saying because two or three generations of policymaking have happened um, in the academic level, at the think tank level, and yet the people in office are the ones that were still taught economics by Milton Friedman, for example. And that's, that's what I'm talking about when we talk about needing fresh ideas and new energy in Congress, is about bringing people into office who aren't slaves to this past this broken war on drugs passed, this broken economic model passed. Um, and, you know, our climate can't wait, but our mental health really, truly cannot wait. So we need people in office who understand these things and who want to push forward on the frontiers of making people's lives better. Nick, so well, and also, maybe could have used some ketamine. Could well, have used yeah. Hey, <laughs> let's not pretend it was just it was just Nixon. Um, the current president, no. Joe Biden, has had a one man war against MDMA, so much so that he rose on the floor of the Senate to speak about how awful it was. And then six days later, voted to send me to Iraq. That's right. So the drug war has absolutely been a bipartisan thing. I think ending it requires bipartisanship. One of my biggest fears is that psychedelic science and the promise that this holds gets drug into the culture war, um, you know, and this is where, you know, I, I love Representative Ocasio-Cortez, but her supporting a psychedelics amendment is a very AOC thing to do. Having Dan Crenshaw stand on the House floor and talk about it is going to win over a lot of people who wouldn't have otherwise considered it. Um, you, you know, know Maxine I Waters, I, I, uh, Congresswoman Waters, uh, uh, formerly of the of Orange County, uh, has been leading a major push uh, for this, a Republican mind you, uh, leading a major push for this. And I actually met her with her on the Upper Mimi East Side Water. here in New York. Sorry? Who, Mimi, or Mimi Water. Water, sorry. Mimi. Uh, Mimi Water. I was say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I met with her on the, I, I'm, there are so many of them. Um, and I met with her on the Upper East Side uh, to talk about this a few months ago at an event with the Apollo Pact because um, this needs to remain a bipartisan, this needs to be and remain a bipartisan thing. This needs to be about people's mental health. It's not about recreation. This is about the science. It is about putting a lock and key on the human mind. The United States of America cannot fall behind and become a less dynamic society because the people in office refuse to change. And that's why we need new people in office. Hmm. 
And well, one point on one point on Hunter Biden uh, to pick up on what John had said. We've played that clip probably a couple times now, where he says, "You know, I've made the decision in my life that I'm going to, you know, use the influence that I have with my with my father." And the right has made a a, a huge deal about that because he obviously has, you know, made a lot of money, you know, on his last name. But specifically in that conversation, what he was talking about was getting his father to prioritize addiction. Uh, so Hunter, Hunter, you know, if this has worked for him, he he really does need, uh, really does need to step up because, like you said, John Biden, uh, among his thirty-year drug war career, he also you know, pushed the Rave Act, one of the most dr- draconian federal laws, which basically criminalized going to an event, whether even even whether or not you were committing any particular crime there, just being there, which is just wildly unconstitutional. I think if Siraj manages uh, to win while talking about this, I think that could. Uh, shake things up in Congress a little bit and get people. Well, we absolutely been there. plan to win, and we absolutely plan to win, and we absolutely plan to talk about this. Um, my district, for example, in Manhattan, is uh, you know leads in, in in the country in terms of anxiety, in terms of uh, depression, for a variety of reasons, and the pressures and stresses we face here in New York, after especially after coronavirus. And there is absolutely nothing wrong and nothing to shy away from here. My opponent voted for the '94 crime bill and every single probably bad bill. Uh, in the Democratic caucus for the last 30 years, including the, the creation of ICE and things like that. So um, I think the contrast is stark there. Um, and, uh, and and you can see it, frankly. Um, so yeah, we have an election on August 23rd, and it is, a, uh, it is one in which psychedelic-assisted therapy is on the ballot. It is on the ballot in the form of Serge Patel versus two incumbents who have been in office since 1992. Well, thank you both so much for your time and your insights on this important issue. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. We'll be back with more Rising right after this. Well, about midday yesterday, the world learned that President Biden had COVID. He is reportedly experiencing mild symptoms, according to his doctor. We have a tweet here from President Biden where you can see uh, some more information on that. Hey, folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID. But I've been double vaccinated, double boosted. Symptoms are mild. And, uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns. But I'm doing well getting a lot of work done, going to continue to get it done. And, uh, and in the meantime, thanks for your concern and keep the faith. It's going to be okay. All right. Well, White House reporter at Real Clear Politics, Philip Wegman, joins, joins us now to weigh in. Philip, thank you so much for stopping by Rising Fridays. No problem. All right. So this comes on the heels of Joe Biden saying this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated uh, for a couple of years. I think he's used that phrase. How is the White House balancing questions about the president's, to the extent it's getting tough questions, um, about the, the president's you know, long history of pushing vaccines, pushing uh, the pandemic of the unvaccinated narrative, while being, what is he, double boosted, and then coming down with COVID himself? The questions that the White House faced yesterday were all about the first order concern, which is the president's health in the here and now. And so I don't think that the press corps made uh, the follow-up question, which was, does any of this fly in the face of the um, medical device that you were giving before? Uh, Some of it, as you mentioned, which sort of took on um, a a bit of a, 
uh, a virtuous tone, this idea that, you know, you weren't um, a good citizen necessarily <laughs> if you weren't um, double boosted and, and vaxxed. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet. Uh, right now, we're still trying to get all of the specifics and particulars down about the president's own condition, uh, because again, he can't escape it. Joe Biden is 79 years old, and we know one thing about this virus, uh, and that is that it is particularly uh, rough for, for folks who are older. But again, uh, the silver lining here is that uh, I guess that the president has been fully vaccinated. He's boosted. He has it. Uh, his doctors, though, say that this will most likely be a mild case. And, you know, during Delta, uh, I think the data was showing something like you were 10 times more likely to get infected if you were unvaccinated rather than vaccinated. And back then, I, think I even called it, you know, pandem uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated at that point. But Boo. over the next several. Yeah. Well, look, I, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 look, I, I get it. <laughs> yeah, you know, but over the next several months and particularly with Omicron and its, its vaccine resistance or its, its right. vaccine, what, what do you call it, or it sneaks around it. Uh, it that that has that has changed the that has certainly changed the equation and yes. I and I don't think anybody even is claiming anymore that the vaccine is is going to prevent you uh, from from getting it uh, and in fact the democratic messaging on this has really changed dramatically Philip and you know you had Ron Klain uh, either this morning or last night posting uh, a piece in the Washington Post by Le, uh, Le, what's her name Liana Wen who had been one of the more alarmist kind of uh, you know COVID folks at the at the early stages but has kind of done a 180 and she wrote a piece for the post saying this shows that this is the new normal everybody's going to get covid mm -hmm. uh you know it's it's amazing that biden didn't get it for this long and Klein has gotten a lot of criticism from from liberals and progressives for for boosting that post because there's you know it, it didn't mention long covid it, uh and it didn't talk about the fact that we shouldn't just make this a new normal in a country that doesn't you know provide health care for uh, everybody across the board. So what you know, what is it that drove this this kind of new White House messaging where they're now kind of on on the on the end of fury from progressives and how kind of nonchalantly they talk about it? Because they don't have any other choice. You've got the president who himself is sick and they need to continue with a business as usual uh, narrative here. Otherwise, that creates all sorts of other problems. Certainly, we all uh, wish the president the best and a speedy recovery, but it's difficult for you to um, you know, have your, your hair on fire and say that we're not doing enough to combat the pandemic and we need Republicans and conservatives to get on board uh, and the vaccine is the best thing ever. And then in the president contracts COVID, right? Um, I think that you're absolutely right, Ryan, uh, that there is uh, differences when it comes to these uh, variants, whether it's Omicron or Delta. Um, I think that as the average person looks back though, they're not going to say, oh, well now the White House says it's more than likely that about 70% of Americans will um, get COVID and it's going to be this new variant. No, they're looking back to the most painful moment in their life um, during this pandemic, uh, wh wherever that might be. And, and if it was a moment where you know they had to face a tough question, which was um, either adhere to the backdoor vaccine mandate, which was you know through the through the employer mandate, or lose their job, they're they're going to be pretty angry with what they see now as nonchalance from from this administration. And that's the needle that I think that the administration is trying to thread here. They're trying to say yes, COVID is still serious. But we're at such a point because of the vaccines and therapies that are available to us that even if you do get it, your chances of being seriously ill are very low. Um, 
but that is going to require some explanation. And we all know uh, this far into the pandemic, people aren't ready for explanations. Um, they're ready for hard set emotions uh, and they're ready to blame someone. And one more question. Um, there's an interesting balance here in that the country really is ready to move on from the pandemic. The country's been ready to move on from the pandemic since two weeks to slow the spread turned out to not be the case. Um, but now that you know things, you know, that there, people have their vaccines, um, there's resistance, and everything is starting to calm down. Um, it's interesting. I wanted to ask Philip, since you, you've covered Biden for a while, what you made of the video the White House posted of him saying, keep the faith, everything is fine. Um, is, is that in a attempt, you know, really, presumably he had that videographer there who I think the White House said was six feet away and was wearing a mask and they were outside. Um, is that an attempt by the White House to sort of reassure the country that things really can be fine even as the virus continues to spread? I think that might have been the secondary concern, this idea that, yeah, cases are going to go up, but deaths are going to go down and we'll be fine. Um, that video was likely an encapsulation of that. I think the um, the primary goal uh, with that clip was for the president to say, look, we, we all remember how uh, things were when Trump had it. You know, I'm fine, I've got it, but you know, my most severe symptoms are runny nose and sore throat. And the Biden administration, they've been preparing for this for some time because they always thought that perhaps it was going to be an inevitability that he got COVID. And when it was some of these more aggressive um, strains, the, the, there was legitimate fear, right, um, about his health. And I think that that video was meant to um, sort of tamp things down. The issue that the White House perhaps could run into um, if Biden does take a turn for the worst and doesn't recover as quickly as we hope uh, is they could be accused of a lack of transparency. Because yesterday, uh, you had the White House press secretary who came out and spoke to reporters, as well as Dr. Zha, who is the COVID task force coordinator. You did not have the president's own personal physician. So we were playing this game of telephone where they would report back to us something that the president's physician had reported to them that the president had reported to the president's physician, right? And one area where that was particularly uh, a problem is the president's physician says that last night Biden came down with these symptoms. Uh, excuse me, on 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 um, uh, Wednesday. Wednesday night he came down for, with these symptoms after coming back from Massachusetts. Ja and Kareem told us that the only symptoms that the president had were fatigue, right? And so, basically, what's going to happen from now until COVID is over or Biden is fully recovered is you are going to have, um, you know people taking a very close look at, at you know what they're doing versus what they're saying. And then I think there will also be some people who are just politically opportunistic um, and they are looking for an opportunity to scold the president uh, for his you know perhaps nonchalance uh, as much as Democrats scolded them. Hmm. Any, any parlor room speculation about where he got it? Does it line up with his trip to the Middle East? Yeah, so uh, Ja was pushed on that. Uh, his thought when he was asked about the Middle East was that no, you know, this, he seemed to imply that more than likely this was something that came from the last 48 hours, right? This wasn't something that he would have picked up from that fist bump with MBS. Uh, but again, we don't know, right? And Corrine did not do herself any favors when a reporter asked, where did he get this? And she said, it doesn't matter. Well, wait a minute. Um, we've been living through contact tracing. Uh, we've been living through, you know, these questions of uh, if you have COVID, who can, who can you pass it on to? So it, it certainly does matter. And there, there are 
both political ramifications and historical ramifications if you know if it was something that he brought back from the middle east if this is something that he picked up um in one of his meetings with uh foreign dignitaries we just had the the wife of the uh, president of ukraine in town or you know is this something that he got when he was in new england and so when i asked kareen um you know if you find out where he picked this up won't you tell us given that um it actually does matter at least for history her response was the most important thing is focusing on the president's health here and now but it's really hard to do contact tracing and figure out where people got COVID. Okay. So that, that, that doesn't exactly uh, inspire confidence in, in us figuring out where the president picked this up. We actually have uh, more from the White House. We have a video clip of the White House's response when asked how Biden possibly got infected. Here's what officials had to say. Where exactly was the president infected? Where was he infected? I, I don't think we know. Um, I certainly don't know if you, if you have any thoughts I, on I, it. Look, I, I don't think that that matters, right? I think what matters is we prepared for this moment. I think what matters uh, is what Dr. Jha just laid out. Uh, if we look at where we were, were a year and a half ago, this is a president, when he walked in, one of his first priorities was to make sure we had a comprehensive plan to get people vaccinated. And so now today, look, look to today, more and more people are getting closer to having a more normal life. Uh, vaccines are available. And as Dr. Jha said, if you have not gotten vaccinated, please do. If you have not, if you're, if you've not gotten boosted, please do. Uh, these are, uh, these are treatments that are going to keep you safe. And I think that's what matters here is making sure that we continue to do the work. And the good thing is that, uh, the president again has been, uh, uh vaccinated and double boosted. Well, we were told it mattered. Uh, the rest of us were told it mattered, and we aren't interfacing with world leaders. Uh, so I'm not sure how well that will fly. Well, a, lot, a lot of places have uh, dropped contact tracing yeah. because of the severity of the community spread. When, when they started dropping contact spreading in D.C. and other places, like, oh, okay, this is bad. Like, it's like, because it's, cause it's everywhere, because now yeah. it's mm -hmm. absolutely everywhere. Right. So, but it, it, I think for historical purposes, it'd be nice to know. But beyond that, like... It's everywhere. It, it, it would be nice to know that's for, for sure. And also from a, a White House that promised to return to normal and all that good stuff. Uh, always great to get insights from the briefing room. White House reporter for Real Clear Politics, Philip Wegman. Thank you, as always, for joining Rising Fridays. Thank you. And we will be back with more Rising Fridays right after this. So Brett Stevens, the columnist who's paid by the New York Times to be wrong about things, wrote a <laughs> column about a thing that he was wrong about. Uh, Trump voters, he says. Emily, what, what did you uh, what did you make of this this mea culpa from Brett Stevens, which was part of a series from the, t the Times where their columnists were laying out the things that they've been wrong about? Yeah, the New York Times published this whole series with columnists from Tom Friedman, the Gil Collins, uh, to Brett, Steven Brett Stevens sort of issuing mea culpas about major things that they'd been wrong about, although Gil Stevens, I'm sorry, Gil Collins uh, took the opportunity to just say she was wrong to uh, talk about Mitt Romney's dog, strapping his dog to the cop top of the car, a, a, a bunch of times, which is sort of a cop out. Uh, but this Brett Stevens column, also, I think also she's not wrong. Like that was a horrifying thing for Mitt Romney to have done. And people should still be talking about it. So she she's actually wrong now to say that she was wrong then. But granted, what she, and that's why she's doing a little bit of a cop out here. What she's saying she was wrong about is writing about it some 80 times. Like she mentioned <laughs> it a truly obscene amount of times. 
And so she's basically just being like, listen, the volume of my complaints about Mitt Romney once strapping his dog to his car was a little off. Uh, but the Brett Stevens column, I think it's important to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time with it, which is that this is sort of a fascinating little exercise from the New York Times because you have Tom Friedman saying he's wrong about Chinese censorship. You have their tech columnist saying he was wrong about Facebook. It's like, oh, great. Now you tell us, uh, you know, 10 years later when you or, or uh, Krugman on inflation is on inflation is another really good example saying, well, nobody could have predicted supply chain issues or the war in Ukraine. And it's like, actually, some people could have. Uh, Matt Stoller tweeted out uh, that, you know, nobody is doing a lot of work here in response to one of Krugman's arguments. But the Stevens column to walk and chew gum at the same time, it's like, great. I'm glad that you've recognized this now, but it's kind of an astounding statement on the level of competence that the New York Times stable of columnists have. So while I can give them credit for being willing to sort of uh, come out there and talk about it and reflect on their errors, I also think it's a pretty it's a pretty strong indictment. I have this quote up from Brett Stevens where he's talking about uh, how I could have also given Trump voters more credit for nuance. For every in-your-face MAGA warrior, there were plenty of ambivalent Trump supporters, doubtful of his ability and dismayed by his manner, who were willing to take their chances on him because he had the nerve to defy deeply flawed conventional pieties. Okay, so Brett Stevens earlier in the column has this great sort of coming apart, Charles Murray-esque revelation about how he was in a bubble where the status quo was fine, and he missed, he, he sort of underestimated the intensity of uh, brokenness, of the brokenness and the terror of the social fabric in other parts of the country because he was in a bubble where the status quo was fine. It's like, dude, all you had to do to hear this perspective from the sort of ambivalent Trump supporters was get out of that bubble. Maybe don't write from your perch in Manhattan about the entire country as an authority on American politics if you're not talking to Republican voters and if you're not talking to voters in general, because I guarantee you, if you had gone down to the super conservative county in Wisconsin that I'm from, and went to a single PTA meeting or a bar, you would have found tons of those ambivalent Trump voters in 10 minutes, and that's all it would have taken. So at the same time, I just think this is a big indictment of their level of competence. And so what, right, so let's go through what Brett Stevens is saying here and, or, and what he's sort of apologizing or saying he was wrong about. So he's saying that he was wrong in, in 2015 to kind of condemn the characters of Trump voters. He, he says, I was right to condemn the character of Donald Trump. He says, I was right to condemn the character of, of the people around him, but I was wrong to, you know, to spread it more broadly to his supporters because his supporters, you know, only had a couple of options and they wanted to, you know, put, stick a, a middle finger up to the, the elites, the protected class, as he, as he calls them through Pecky Noonan. And this was their vehicle to do that. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't disparage them for, for doing that. Now, I mean, I'd say a couple of things that one, I, I think it's I think it is on it is actually OK to to say to make value judgments about opinions generally. Like, I think that's OK. You can you can say, like, I think this opinion is, is wrong. You shouldn't hold it. I think that I think that's fine. But from there, what you need to do is you, you need to work uh, to persuade people of why that's the case, because I think once you have millions of people who believe a certain thing, placing a value judgment on it is kind of beyond useless and actually is probably counterproductive. Like, because at that point, you're in the realm of, of, of structural change and structural phenomena that have that have driven those tens of millions of people to have those views. And and you can't just kind of condemn your way 
out of it. You need to kind of change the structural conditions that that created uh, though that that phenomena. And so uh, so I think he's so I think that's why he's both kind of wrong and right there. Yeah, it's interesting. He starts by saying the worst line I've ever written as a pundit is, if by now you don't find Donald Trump appalling, you're appalling. What's appalling is that anybody would ever have the instinct uh, to put that in print, to etch that in the sort of digital stone that you're condemning uh, this wide swath of the country as appalling without you know, talking. Clearly, he hadn't talked to enough people, period, to render a judgment that severe. Um, and so I think that says a lot, just period, and to your point about structural change, um, the New York Times is part of that structure, is completely part of that structure. And he sort of reckons with that a little bit. He kind of flirts with the idea of saying, you know, it, it, it's exa- I was confirming the suspicions uh, that were pushing people to Trump. You know, my behavior totally confirmed that narrative and cemented it as, as accurate. And it's like, okay, so what has changed? Other than you, Brett Stevens, saying, oh, yeah, maybe I was wrong about that in one column. What has changed structurally, not just structurally in the economy, but structurally in the New York Times or in the media? And what have you done to be a part of that structural change that is going to uh, sort of heal some of these wounds? Seriously, what have you done? Um, and that's a, an answer, totally open question, because there's no good answer to it. Right. No, he hasn't done anything. But so and going but going back to the point about how sometimes it is OK, I think, to make some judgments that so I think the timing here lines up around the time of the Muslim ban. Because we're what are we talking August 2015? Yeah. So yeah. I think if you if you want to make the point that uh, that if if you watch Donald Trump, you know, say that he wants to ban all Muslims from coming into the country, and you don't find that appalling, that is appalling. Now I think what he's what, what Stevens is missing there is that I think a lot of people who supported Trump also found that appalling, and that's a very contradictory and difficult thing to hold together and so what it says is that they're they're in a system that is only giving a couple of different you know uh, avenues toward their expression of a politics and they might find what trump is saying appalling but they find the things that he's fighting against even more appalling and so then you have to tease out uh you know you have to tease out individual things but i think it is okay to say that if you support a ban on somebody coming into the country because of their religion, that's appalling. But it wasn't uh, now, because whether of you're the, appalling or right. But I think this is what's so frustrating. It, it, people would it, like this is exactly the point. He did not. That that is a uh, an argument that like for for instance, your from your perspective as somebody who has an, an open opinion, which is you know, a lot of reporters purport to be totally neutral, right? Like they can write with the voice of God and they referred to it as a Muslim ban. When you can make that argument, you can certainly make the argument that this was on the basis of religion, but that's technically not what he did. He was doing it, he he wanted to do it on the basis of national origin. And that's what's frustrating to people because it makes them distrust media and it makes them say, this is why I want to vote for somebody who's just going to bulldoze the entire media um, because this is not a neutral sort of rendering and I don't know what to trust anymore. Um, And so I think Stevens interestingly does reckon with that when he says he could have given Trump voters more credit for nuance, exactly what you said, Ryan, that there's some people who maybe do find that appalling. And absolutely, you know, the same people who voted for Barack Obama, who then voted for Donald Trump, um, who really had a, a key influence over the outcome of the election, 
yeah, I, I think it's absolutely true. Although all he would have had to have done is you know, talked to some people to find that. That described back then, that described, I mean, so many Republican voters that you could throw a, you know, a dart. You couldn't miss it in a crowd of people at a Republican rally. Um, but I think it, it's also really important that just that alone is a good example of when your community is being ravaged by opioids and being ravaged by you know, private equity, the, the paper mill is closing, whatever it is, uh, the, the church pews are empty, divorce is really high. All of these problems are rampant. The social safety net has holes in it that uh, you know, are, are just, it's incapable of catching people. When that's your, your situation, yeah, you're going to care a little bit less when the media is telling you to be worried about something, but they're also sort of doing it in a way that makes it hard for you to understand what's actually happening. Right. Although I'm not talking about the Muslim ban, which was, uh, you know, like you said, February of 2017. Yeah. This is a his column is from 2015 when when he announced the ban, and here here he said he he read it he read he read read it he read a statement to his audience saying, quote, Donald, Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on, he said. Okay. Um, and so he, he very specifically made it about about religion at the time. Yes. When the when the lawyers went to implement it, they're like, yeah, bruh, you, you, you can't put Muslim in the executive order. You have to just pick countries that are predominantly Muslim. Uh, and then and then you can try to uh, get away with it. But so that's a good point. That's, at, that's yeah. totally that is completely. Uh, yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right about that. I was thinking of the 2017 ban and not the, right. the statement from 2015, which was, right. to your point, very explicit. And that's my bad. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's around the time that Stephen, I think that's around the time that Stevens was running. And here I am defending Stevens, which is the last thing I ever I ever want to do. But my point is that you can on the one hand say that that's appalling. Um, and, and cheering that is appalling. And on the other hand, understand that people have such a depth of anger that they see other things as even more appalling and then take that understanding and, and try to deal with the structural phenomena that are causing that hatred. So otherwise it's gonna to continue to spin more and more out of control. Right. And, and that's like that obviously wasn't the best case study because I was thinking of the 2017 example, but there were myriad examples of sure. things that Donald Trump said being good. Right. He would say something and then they would take spin it out a little bit further than what he what he actually said, which he was he, he was also happy with that circumstance, too. Like it was it was the media and, and Trump were kind of feeding off of themselves in that way. Yeah, and that's a good example. Like what he said on the campaign trail versus what he actually implemented is a case study in the public pressure kind of working. It didn't create the exact policy outcome, but he also didn't issue a, a literal, he didn't end up issuing a literal Muslim right. ban, even though it's a perfectly fair argument to say that was the consequence of it. So it, right. they're two very different things, and the nuance there is important. And I think to, to your point about how they're always at loggerheads in this sort of theater that was feeding ratings and all of that, it just turned out to be really unhelpful in ways that really really deeply, deeply frustrated people. Um, and that's, you know, what's Brett Stevens doing to really fix that other than just sort of shrugging and being like, whoops, I missed it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And the, the full series, by the way, it's like they're making these big uh, concessions on Chinese censorship, on Facebook, I mean, on inflation, capitalism. These are not like minor little, oh, whoops, we, we got it wrong. Uh, we talked too much about Mitt Romney strapping his dog to a car. It's like, oh yeah, no, we were using our platform at the most powerful news outlet in the entire world to mainstream things and legitimize things that ha, we got wrong. This is so funny.
And 80, 80 references uh, to the dog being on the roof, I think, is actually fine. 90, it's not enough. 100. Yeah, not, not enough. <laughs> hey, get the dog off the roof. What is wrong with you? Oh, true. Uh, well, <laughs> fundamental indictment. Just one of Romney's many problems, but we'll be back oh. with more Rising right after this. Well, according to newly released data from the Labor Department, new applications for jobless benefits rose to the highest weekly level since November just last week. Finance reporter at The Hill, Sylvan Lane, joins us now to discuss what this means for the economy and for the Biden administration. Welcome, Sylvan. Thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. All right. So we covered the job numbers that came out last week on the show last week. Now, can you try to square these numbers with those numbers? So these are the jobless claims versus the unemployment numbers. What does the combination of both of them tell us about where things are in the economy right now? Sure. So the first thing to understand is that while layoffs are always seen and considered to be bad for whoever's getting them, there's always a certain amount of layoffs happening in the economy at any given time. A lot of that is just because some jobs are seasonal. Uh, you know, they start during a season, they end during another one, and then those people move on to another thing. Uh, so it's not always, you know, oh, no, there's layoffs. This is bad. But what's happening is we're starting to see layoffs rise from the extraordinarily low levels that we've seen for the past year or so back toward levels that are more consistent with the normal economy. Now, the jobs numbers we got last week were great. The U.S. is still adding more than 300,000 jobs per month, uh, more than 2.5 million jobs since the beginning of this year alone. But we are starting to see signs that that job growth and that very, very strong labor market might be starting to slow down a little bit. Yeah, and relative to the size of the economy, this was a pretty slight increase, something like 7,000 increased jobs, you know, week, week over, increased job losses week over week. But is this the beginning of what the Fed is trying to do, you know, by trying to slow the economy, by trying to throw people out of work? Are we starting to see that kind of that policy bear fruit here? You know, that could certainly be one of the factors at play here. So the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates since March with the goal of slowing the economy enough that inflation comes down but without causing a recession or you know, widespread job losses. Unfortunately, this usually means that there will be some layoffs throughout the economy, maybe more so than there would have been otherwise. But from the Fed's perspective, what they're trying to do is bring the excess amount of job openings they see that businesses can't fill back down closer to the number of unemployed people there are in America. Now, there's no easy targeted way to do this. It's kind of like, you know, you either have the accelerator or the brake. So you don't have a great way to, you know, bring down inflation necessarily from the Fed's perspective without causing some job losses in the way necessarily. But yeah, you know, this is something that they've been looking for. They've been looking to see layoffs increase a little bit. The thing is, they don't want to see them get much further or start rising without getting out of control. So where are we seeing, which sectors are most of these layoffs happening? Are there ones that are being hit particularly hard that are feeling this most acutely? Sure. So the, the sectors that are seeing the biggest layoffs so far are the ones that are most directly affected by when interest rates get higher. Uh, these are real estate and housing companies who, you know, will see fewer sales because mortgage rates are going higher and home sales are starting to fall off technology companies who are usually very, very uh, sensitive to when interest rates get higher, 
are starting to lay off folks too, because a lot of these companies have a lot of debt or they rely on international sales. And when U.S. interest rates go up, it's kind of a complicated process, but that usually means foreign sales for U.S. companies start to go down. So it's mainly those companies in those sectors retail a little bit also, but right now it's mainly folks that are you know on the front lines of higher interest rates. So I want to go back to your your good accelerator and break uh, analogy here, because I think it helps us think about ways that we can address what's going on here. And so you mentioned that there are you know two job openings for every single person searching for jobs. So the U.S. policy response here, the Fed response is, well, we have too many job openings. We got to throw we got to throw people out of work, and and if we slow the economy, then we'll have one job opening for every one person. Why not? spend some policy effort trying to get more people into the job market? You know, that's a great question. And what the Fed was trying to do for most of the past two years by keeping interest rates low enough was trying to make sure the economy was strong enough to get people back to work. Now, labor force participation is still lower than it was before the pandemic for a lot of reasons. One of them is the pandemic. A lot of people either shifted jobs or aren't back to necessarily back to work yet. Some folks retired because they didn't need to work anymore. Uh, other factors are people are still, you know, who got sick might be dealing with long COVID or some of the, you know, sad repercussions of getting COVID and may not be able to go back to work yet. So the Fed tried to do what it could on that front. But a lot of it really comes down to things that are more in Congress's wheelhouse. We were talking about the accelerator and the brake. Congress is really the one behind the steering wheel, the one operating the GPS. Fiscal policy, when Congress spends money or raises or lowers taxes to achieve certain outcomes in the economy, that's a lot more direct and a lot more tailorable, per se, than the Fed just making money more expensive or cheaper to get. Hmm. And there's a there's a quote here. The labor market is softening, but the change is so far gradual. The U.S. economy is cooling, but is probably not in recession in July. That's from Bill Adams in a, an analysis from yesterday. Uh, probably not in recession in July. Uh, that's a, a sort of sad phrase. But Sylvan, can you tell us uh, where we go from here? Are fears of a recession, when you look at numbers like this, uh, perhaps assuaged? Or is it very much a likelihood uh, in the months ahead? So there's two ways of looking at this. The, the optimistic way is that uh, this is yet another sign that the Fed's higher interest rates might be slowing the economy enough to bring inflation down. Uh, you know, there's always trade-offs whenever you're in an environment like this. And while it's really, really tough for people who have been laid off, especially if they're still struggling to get by, there's few people who think that the U.S. could get out of this high inflation spiral without something giving. The pessimistic view of this is that we're starting to see the economy slow down a bit, but we haven't really seen signs of inflation coming down yet. Now, gas prices obviously are a lot lower this month than they were in June, but they're volatile and that's just one area where inflation is hitting. So it's gonna take a little bit more time to know whether or not this is the start of what the Fed and economists like to call a soft landing or the start of what will inevitably be a recession. Hmm. I want to pick up real quick on your retirement point, because a huge amount of the labor shortage, and it doesn't get discussed much in the media, came because of the point that you made, that a lot of people uh, retired early. And they, they retired early for this 
you correct me if you think I'm missing anything, this, this combination of reasons. One, you know, basically work sucks. Uh, and if you can retire, you retire. Uh, working during a pandemic sucks even more. So if you can retire during a pandemic, you're going you're going to do that. And the thing that enabled these retirements was, uh, you know, 401ks and other retirement uh, retirement accounts were were blowing up because of this, the stock market explosion in 2020, 2021. And asset prices, particularly real estate, was go- going way up, too. So all of a sudden people had a ton of equity in their homes. Their 401ks were looking fatter. Uh, work was getting worse. So you had you know, tens of millions of early retirements. It Interestingly, all, a lot of the Fed policy here is undoing the things that enabled people to retire early. Housing prices are going to come down and people's 401k is getting completely whacked. So do you think we're going to see a wave of what, what you might call unretirements of people who thought that they were done and are kind of being forced by economic circumstances back into the market? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very likely outcome of the situation. You know, We've seen some of we've seen some unretirements per se pick up over the past year, not enough to you know make up for the gap or to explain the gap between labor force participation now and before the pandemic. But yeah, you know if you're somebody who retired because your stock portfolio was doing great, you were able to sell your house for a huge profit or you have a lot of home equity, but now you're looking at a picture where those factors are going away. And also, we're a little, you know, we're safer from COVID now than we were two years ago. Maybe you come back to work, maybe because you need the money, maybe because it gave you a sense of purpose. Now, this doesn't explain all of the reasons why labor force participation is lower now than before. But yeah, as the economy slows down, as stock prices come down, as home values eventually start to come down, there's going to be more people who have an incentive to get back into the labor force. And that's part of what the Fed's trying to do by raising interest rates. Mm. Thank you, Sylvan. We really appreciate your insights and we will have more rising for you after this. Now, for me, the past is the past. And there is no benefit to you if I relitigate what was said and done involving my brother. And there are some outstanding legal fights that I have to respect. But let me be clear, I really do regret how everything ended, but I will never regret helping my family. I promised my father I would always be there for my brother, and I always will be, just like he has always been there for me, just like my sisters have been there for me and have been there for him. That's family. Now, still there is loss and there's sadness. Being a reliable source of information and analysis for you matters to me a great deal. And I really have missed being able to help and communicate, especially during such wild times for all of us. As for CNN, I'll never be a hater. CNN has great people. CNN has a great purpose. And I wish them all the best. And I miss so many of the people there. But it's time for me to move on. That's uh, the newest Rising Friday correspondent, uh, Chris Cuomo. <laughs> <laughs> Looking very Welcome, tan, Chris. by the way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Ryan, uh, what do you make of it? I, he shouldn't have gone into journalism if that's like yep. the values that he's expressing are noble values. Stand by your family. Fine. That's one. Great. That's good. Promise your father you always have you'll always support your brother. Great. I, I have no problem with that. You, but then you cannot you know, make a career as a as a journalist 
who is covering your brother because then you have sold out the public uh, in order in order then to make good on this private promise that you've made to your family if your brother is somebody like Andrew Cuomo who's going to be going on a, a variety of different crime sprees. And so, yeah, I think it's it's fine, but just not fine for a journalist. Not fine for a journalist, and I, I don't think anybody has any reason to trust him at all, period, anymore, especially, by the way, if his consequence is a few months off from CNN and then he gets hired elsewhere because it shows there's really no incentive for him to change. If his consequence is a few months off, a bad PR cycle, and then he fi- ends up with another paycheck and another platform just a few months later, then there, there's no significant consequence to him going behind viewers' back, negotiating, and being part of a political scandal involving himself in the politics of the city of New York while he covers American politics and while he covers his brother, by the way, gives his brother a platform. Well, we know now the nursing home scandal was completely happening as he's going on this nightly show with no questions, no skepticism, because he's talking to his brother. And Chris Cuomo said years ago, he made the point of saying, you know, I won't cover my brother because it's so obviously wrong. So what changes? I mean, it's just there's there was no incentive ever for him really to be on the straight and narrow, and I still don't think there's an incentive. Um, so for anyone serious to give him a platform going forward, I think that would be um, a real disservice to their readers and their viewers because they just have no reason to trust him. Um, and it's laughable that someone could ever lack judgment to that degree. Um, and, and repeatedly, over the course of months, uh, have a lapse in judgment that's severe, and then just say, Oh, I'm sorry, but it's all good now. Um, I was, you know, he deflects too. He doesn't even take full blame. He, he deflects and says, I was, preventing, pre- I was protecting my family. You're right, Ryan. Don't go into journalism if that's your motive. I will say, though, that I think losing that perch, that, that coveted kind of nightly CNN slot, that, that is actually a real consequence. And now he's, you know, now he's down to like sitting, sitting in a poorly lit room with a microphone like all the rest of us. And so, you know, that's, that's got to, yes, for, for now, what is he doing? Well, like, what's the, you know, what is his long-term plan? Do you know, like, and, and is that just a, like a, he's, he's on locals now or where, where's, where's he doing his, like, where is he doing his show or whatever he's got? I don't know. I've seen him doing a couple of interviews, and I assume that means he's like actively strategizing, trying to massage his image back to a better place and get deals and shop himself around and try to find something. And that's why I think it's important to make the point that, you know, it's it's really he, he, he has lost the trust of viewers. And by deflecting it and saying I was just protecting my family instead of I was completely wrong. This is not the role of a journalist, no matter what, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the allegations here, that's not allegations. We have emails. He's actively operating right. behind the scenes on behalf half of a politician while acting as a journalist and then not disclosing it. It's pretty wild. Um, and so, yes, it's his brother this time around, but it's such a severe lapse in judgment that I just don't see how he deserves the trust of viewers until he comes out and says, this was a severe lapse of judgment. A journalist has no place doing this. I lied to my viewers. I was basically uh, misrepresenting my role. I was misrepresenting. I was completely biased in the situation. You know, he, he deflected. Um, and until he can come out and say that, if he's shopping himself around to other platforms, um, I think it would be a mistake for somebody to to give him another platform just because he he lost the trust. Uh, he lost the trust, and I don't think he deserves the trust. Right. As, as a journalist, your your sole and only loyalty has to be to the public. Like, yep. and if it's and if it's not, then when you say that uh, your trust is important to me, but I had a you know I promised my father I'd always stick by my brother. It's like, well, then trust wasn't actually that important to you. Mm-hmm. Like it, it has, it has to come 
it has to come first. The public has to come first. And with, you know, with, with him, it didn't, I don't know what platform, uh, he'd wind up at. Cause obviously he's not going back to CNN that leaves MSNBC. I, it's hard to see MSNBC picking up somebody that CNN booted because just out of, you know, pride, you know, basic pride, corporate pride reasons. So after that, uh, Peacock, I mean, I, I can't, I can't see where he wants. It's hard for me to see any, any prestigious. I, mean, I don't know. Like I sh- you could would Showtime or some type of streaming thing that thinks that they can. But you know, all these streaming places are saturated with his audience. Like right. Netflix has said that. Like they're not. Like they got Obama. They got everybody who likes Obama. Like they're not. That that's not who they want now. Like they they need to expand beyond. Like they they feel like they. Basically, they have everybody in that demographic that they're going to be able to get. Now they just need to. Now they're just going to try to charge them more and make their kids get accounts too. Um, but you know, they're not. They're not finding new people that aren't on. So I don't know. I don't know where uh, a Cuomo winds up. Substack. Yeah, it's it's certainly possible. Uh, YouTube sub, Substack podcasting. I don't know. Um, I, I, given his level of. Uh, power and connection, I would assume that he is shopping himself around somewhere. I don't know what that would be. Um, but yeah, you're right, Ryan. It's hard to imagine what it would be. But if anybody is imagining it, uh, free advice here, stop. <laughs> because distrust in media is already way high enough. Um, you don't need to add fuel to the fire for the sake of ratings because it will backfire on you someday. It's, you, the, the backlash will come for your ratings at some point, even if it's not in the short term. Yeah, that's not not a sustainable approach to trying to balance those two things. No, not at all. Well, that's all we have for uh, Rising Fridays today. Uh, Ryan, is there is it, is it, you have any final thoughts on the, the saga, the tortured saga of the Cuomo brothers? I think that's uh, that's uh, you've we've beyond exhausted my thoughts on the Cuomo brothers. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a weekly Ryan Grimm segment uh, checking in on <laughs> yes. the Cuomos. <laughs> Well, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen well on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts, of course. Make sure to check that out. Uh, We will have, of course, more Rising Fridays for you next Friday. We hope we continue to cultivate that Pavlovian response among the audience where you you know it's Friday and you just you can't wait to get up and uh, just go through the whole playlist of Rising Fridays. There you go. Yeah. And check out that podcast. It's I, I've been listening to it from the other days of rising a little bit, too. And it's like it's a it's a nice way to to take it in, actually. And and then you're also not at the whim of the algorithm as much um, because you can just you know, you know, you know where you've got it. That's true. Uh, that's that's a good point. Maybe I should start doing that, too. Although, uh, you know, Rising Fridays, it's all you really have I mean, to listen right, to. Yes. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> we love the other guys. No, you don't you don't want to miss Robbie and Bree like going at it. That's that's good stuff. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, you don't want to miss Kim, it, Kim sure. and Kim trying to moderate. It's like we were talking. I saw Robbie. It's a new dynamic there. It was Robbie was trying to moderate between me and Kim. Now it's Kim moderating between uh, Robbie and Brianna. It's great. We need like color commentary uh, for Rising. So it's like the Tony Romo of news commentary. (laughs) Maybe we could do it for them, actually. That's. That would be fun. We'll do a post game. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) actually, not a bad idea. Well, maybe we'll experiment with that. But uh, make sure you, you stay tuned in, and we'll be back next week with more Rising Fridays. Have a good weekend, everybody.